Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was nearing the end of the cashier's shift. He'd been working for six hours already, and the small-town store in Cozad, Nebraska, was particularly quiet today. The cashier thumbed a magazine lazily, not really reading the words, and watching the intermittent ebb and flow of customers. The young guy who came in daily for tobacco, and the children looking for a fix of Hershey's or candy. At some point in the afternoon, an older man walked in and made his way over to the coolers at the back of the store. He was wearing an oversized T-shirt which looked well-worn and kept moving his straggly white hair from his eyes with the palm of his hand. He had a casual, almost sloppy air about him, the cashier observed. The man stood for a long time in front of the fridge, in front of the icy cans of Dr Pepper, Gatorade and cream soda, Eventually, he selected one from the shelf and shuffled to the cashier's desk. The two men stood face to face, and the customer placed a can of vanilla Coke on the counter between them. The cashier noticed the man's moustache, which needed a trim, and, as the gentleman picked up the can and walked out of the store to places in business unknown, it left a ring mark behind. It was an entirely nondescript interaction and the man immediately fell from the cashier's mind, the same as most of his other customers. But a week later, that face, that can of Coke, would be emblazoned on the cashier's memory forever, when, during another long shift, he happened to see that man's face on the news. (laughs) 
My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 14, The Coke Can. William Quayle set off to walk the 150 feet towards his daughter's house in Cherry Hill, Colorado, where she lived on South Ogden Street. As usual, William looked forward to seeing her. The phrase, Daddy's girl, is well used, and in the Quayle family, it certainly rang true. William had two daughters, and was close to both of them. But it was Sylvia who he was visiting today. His ambitious, vibrant, 34-year-old girl who lit up the room when she walked in. William wanted to talk to Sylvia about a new building he'd come across in a book he was reading. It was a passion they shared, buildings. Sylvia was a history buff, as well as working as a secretary at an architectural firm. Her uncle was also an architect, the relatively well-known Wesley Quayle. So she and her father always had plenty to talk about when it came to buildings old and new debating the merits of design or structure. It was just before 8am on August the 4th, 1981, and the day was already promising to be a scorcher. William had the thought there might be some leftover cake at his daughter's house, which he could take away with him to eat later. Sylvia was an excellent baker and had started her own business specialising in wedding cakes, so there were often some sweet offcuts to be found in her kitchen. William knocked lightly on the front door and opened it. It was unlocked. He called his daughter's name. But then, before he could utter the second syllable, he saw her. To the right of the entryway, a clear view into the house, he saw Sylvia lying naked on her back on the living room floor. Her arms were stretched upward over her head, entangled in the red, long-sleeved shirt she was wearing. Her face was covered with a white towel, which was dotted with reddish-brown stains. William ran to his daughter's side, trying to catch his breath, as a high-pitched hum reverberated in his ears. His brain was trying to compute the uncomputable. He uttered his daughter's name over and over. Was she alive? What had happened? Who had done this? He lifted the white cloth from his daughter's beautiful face. Underneath, her eyes were open and a sob erupted from his chest. William placed the cloth over Sylvia's groin and with the palm of his hand, gently closed her eyes. Later, he wouldn't remember what he said, 
records reveal that he called 911 and told the operator that his daughter was dead. The first officers to arrive at the scene were Cherry Hills Police Department's own Detective Larry Whitman and Detective Sergeant Richard Krause. They were both experienced officers, but neither of them ever got used to the brutality of such scenes and to the palpable heartbreak of those left behind. In this case, the bereft William Quayle, who'd called in the incident. Cherry Hills wasn't a huge department, and both officers knew instinctively that, for a crime like this, with no immediate leads, suspects or motivations, they were going to need to call in some assistance. So almost from the outset, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, or the CBI for short, were enlisted to help the small town force. This help came in the form of agents Walt Chin, Wayne Bryant and Howard Gillespie, who arrived soon thereafter. Together, this task force would conduct an investigation which would go on to spend 30 years, a period of profound forensic evolution, one which would become imperative in bringing Sylvia's killer to justice. The officers moved through the crime scene with experienced efficiency, starting with Sylvia's body. She was, as her father had first encountered, entirely naked. One officer, having been told that it had been moved, repositioned the piece of white cloth back to its original position across Sylvia's face. First rule of all crime scenes, don't move the evidence. The young woman's hands were covered in blood, which had turned from a frank red into a now dark brown colour as it had oxidised. Blood was also evidently caked under her fingernails, many of which were broken. The officers looked at each other knowingly. This was a clear sign Sylvia had fought back. Red marks dappled across Sylvia's pale neck, and there were more marks on her elbows and knees, as well as some faint red marks just below her left inner thigh. The bruises, to Detective Whitman's trained eye, were the shadows of fingerprints which had made their mark just hours earlier. They couldn't know until swabs had come back from the lab, of course, but each of the officers silently determined that Sylvia had most likely been sexually assaulted. Detective Whitman walked through the house. After years in the force, his keen eye was almost automatically drawn to things of significance. The inside of the living room was visible from just outside the front door, the first and most obvious entry point to the house. Detective Whitman stood there, taking in the space, the dimensions. Sylvia's body lay face up on the living room floor. Her head pointed northwest, her feet southeast. The detective, using a pair of steel tweezers, tentatively lifted up a white blouse which was discarded on the floor next to Sylvia's body. Below it was a kitchen knife, with the unmistakable signs of blood marks on the blade, which had stained the floor below. A few feet from the knife was a pair of knickers, which Detective Whitman presumed to be Sylvia's. He cast his eye around the living room again, this time expressly looking for blood, either pooled or spattered, to try and conjure an image in his mind of how events unfolded. Blood can be a clear visual indicator of where an attack occurred, 
the direction of travel of both victim and assailant, or an indication of the weapon used. There were multiple bloodstains on the living room floor. One was near the front door, a small pool, and two on the carpet, approximately four to five feet from Sylvia's body. Depending on who the blood belonged to, it was fair to assume the living room had been the main site of the attack, and perhaps the blood near the door had been left by the killer as he exited. But whether the blood belonged to killer or victim, Detective Whitman couldn't be sure. Then there was the telephone cord, which was usually connected from the wall to the phone in the living room, but had evidently been cut. Cleanly. Possibly with the knife, he thought to himself. As he walked into Sylvia's bedroom, he saw that between her bed and her bedroom door were a series of small blood droplets. This changed the ever-evolving scenario in his mind once again. Had Sylvia initially been attacked in her bedroom? Had this been a lover's quarrel which escalated and spilled out into the living room? Did Sylvia even have a lover? So many possibilities which Detective Whitman and his team needed to whittle down. Whitman walked outside. The day had indeed turned out to be hot, and he shielded his eyes from the glare above as he walked measuredly around the perimeter. He saw that both the security screen door and the front door to the home were open. So was this the way the killer entered the house? Whitman had been told by one of his officers that Sylvia had had a phone call with her sister the previous night at around 11pm. So the time of her death was between the time she hung up the phone and when she was found by her father around nine hours later. It was unlikely that Sylvia had left the door open intentionally. So had she known her assailant? Had someone knocked at the door and she'd answered, let them in? Could the perpetrator have had a key, perhaps? That might give weight to the lover theory. Sylvia's car was parked in front of the detached garage, a 1974 brown Chevrolet Corvette, and Detective Whitman saw that the telephone line that was supposed to run all the way to the house was lying across the hood of the car. It looked like it had been pulled away from the insulator that was mounted to the south side of the house. There was also a garden hose strewn on the floor nearby, Whitman had a hunch that it had been used to throw over the phone line and then yank the line downwards. And sure enough, when he examined it more closely, the hose did indeed have black marks on it, consistent with having connected with the telephone line. Continuing his reconnaissance, Whitman saw the exterior bathroom window had had its external screen removed. It was lying about 75 feet from the house in some long grass. The window itself was closed but unlocked and there was a small pry mark on the bottom of the wooden window frame. Below the bathroom window, lying on the floor, were several items which definitely did not belong there. There was a can of hairspray, two hair curlers, a silver canister and a small spoon. There was also another section of the exterior phone line on the ground here too, had the killer thrown these things outside? Had he intended to take them with him? The window to Sylvia's bedroom provided still more evidence. 
There was a small circular hole in the lower right corner of the screen. A peephole, perhaps. Or a way to then gain entry to the house. Officers set to the task of carefully collecting evidence from inside and outside the house. The white cloth found on Sylvia's face was sealed in a sterile bag, as were the white knickers found on the floor and the silver knife found next to Sylvia's body. One forensic investigator rolled up and packaged the orange rug, a decorative feature of the living room on which Sylvia's body had been found. 140 pieces of evidence were collected in total that day and they would all go on to be subjected to the most up-to-date forensic processes available. At Arapahoe County Coroner's Office, it was medical examiner John Wood's task to complete the autopsy on Sylvia. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. He pulled on his gloves and sensitively, painstakingly, began to collect the evidence from Sylvia's body. He rinsed her hair into a sieve to dislodge any evidence concealed within the strands. He scraped samples from beneath her fingernails. He photographed each mark on her body and he took internal and external swabs. In his opinion, she had indeed been sexually assaulted. After hours at work, Dr Wood felt he was able to determine a cause of death. In his report, he wrote that, in his professional opinion, that Sylvia Quayle's death was caused by exsanguination due to laceration of the heart and the multiple stab wounds to the posterior chest that Quayle sustained. Dr Wood also determined that a secondary cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. This was made by a gun firing .22 calibre bullets and he had removed two fragments of bullet from Quayle's brain which had echoed tinnily as he dropped them into a metal tray. Based on his training and experience, Dr Wood knew that the level of blood loss Sylvia had sustained meant she would have died very quickly. He also knew that her defensive wounds indicated that she'd put up a good fight against her attacker. To his mind, what was unequivocal, uncontestable, was that Sylvia had been murdered. This was the early 80s. Forensic testing was in its infancy. 
Crimes were solved by good old-fashioned detective work, by door-knocking and phone-bashing. But despite hours of police footfall and interviews, no one had seen anyone enter Sylvia's house. No one had heard anything. No one had any clue who could have committed such an atrocious act on a girl with no perceivable enemies. Widespread local news coverage and campaigning from Sylvia's family didn't bring forth any new leads either, and, after weeks, a chief suspect, any suspect, in fact, remained elusive. And whilst the heartbreak was still raw and all-encompassing for Sylvia's friends and family, and the shock permeated around the community long after the event, the sharp relief of it faded. Despite the best efforts of the police force and the Quayle family, the people of Cherry Hill moved on. A few years later, the main telephone line of Cherry Hill Police Department began to ring. It was a reporter wanting to speak to a detective on the Sylvia Quayle murder about a confession that was making the rounds on the news circuit. Notorious drifter and serial killer Otis Elwood Toole a man convicted of six murders and serving his time in prison, had apparently confessed to killing Sylvia. A TV station was reporting that Toole had described trees and hedges around Sylvia's home in exact detail. Officers sprang into action. Was this it? The confession which would crack the case? Investigations began. Could they confirm that Toole was in Cherry Hill, or even Arapahoe County, on the day of the murder? What else did he have to say about the crime scene, or about the attack on Sylvia, that could act as definitive proof of his presence that day? With most crimes, not all information makes it to the press, with the precise reason of validating claims and confessions later on. And Toole's information was sketchy at best. But this could be attributed to his low IQ, or his mental health conditions. But the more officers dived into the detail, the more sceptical they became. Tool, in collaboration with his accomplice, Henry Lee Lucas, was claiming to be responsible for over a 100 murders across America over a 25-year period. Many of these confessions had turned out to be wildly false. The public, keen to find a conclusion to the case, latched on to Toole as the killer, despite the fact there was nothing concrete to suggest his involvement. He remained a person of interest in everyone's minds for years. Until 1993, in fact, when Bob Gallagher, the then Arapahoe County District Attorney, dropped the charges against Toole in Quayle's killing. By that time, DNA testing had proven that Toole was not the source of the DNA found at the crime scene 12 years earlier. Time passed. The Quayle family continued to exist, to live. But with the momentum of science, the tide shifted. Forensic technicians began experimenting with an alternate light source on gathered evidence. Under fluorescent light... Potential foreign material could now be identified with certainty. And, sure enough, the orange rug on which Sylvia had died showed up evidence of bodily fluid. 
1995, that section of the rug was resent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for testing. It was confirmed as a DNA sample, but still no definitive match could be made. In fact, it wasn't until 2000, five years later, when an unknown male DNA profile was finally developed and placed into the FBI new DNA index system, a system called CODIS. CODIS was developed in the United States as a central location for law enforcement to compare DNA profiles of individuals who had been convicted of a certain class of crime. The idea was that as the database grew, they would be able to take DNA from a crime scene and upload it into CODIS to look for a match. In this case, no match presented itself, but with the DNA now stored, it meant that should matching DNA evidence ever be recovered in another crime, it would immediately be flagged. A positive step, if not a conclusive one. 20 years go by. The original officers have long since retired. Cherry Hill has evolved and changed with the times. It's January 2020 when the police department begins working with the United Data Connect Genetic Genealogy Company. And on the 26th of May, a lead emerges about a decades-old cold case. Cold, but maybe still open. There's been a hit in CODIS. An unknown male DNA profile appears to have links with the DNA on file in the Sylvia Quayle case. The genetic genealogy company tell Cherry Hill that there's a man that they should look into, one David Dwayne Anderson. Born on the 10th of July 1958 and living 300 miles east in Cozad, Nebraska. And the genealogists went one step further too, Having done their own research, they were able to provide documentary evidence that Anderson had been in Colorado State and indeed the city of Englewood, near to Cherry Hill, prior, during and following Sylvia's murder. So, who was David Anderson? Detectives immediately looked into Anderson's criminal history. This was such a brutal murder that they reasoned it couldn't have been his first and only offence. Sure enough, he did have a rap sheet which showed he'd been arrested for committing commercial and residential burglaries on eight separate occasions between 1981 and 1986. The records also revealed that during one of these burglaries, Anderson had entered the premises by removing and discarding the screen of the bedroom window, a notable element of the quail crime scene too. So could this be it? A burglary gone horribly wrong? It looked that way, but appearances can be deceiving. The narrative needed to be airtight. Investigators knew they needed foolproof evidence that Anderson was their man. On the 17th of January, 2021, Investigator Robert Fuller, who worked for United Data Connect, boarded a plane to New England. He wasn't there on holiday. Instead, his visit was to try and surreptitiously collect a DNA sample from David Anderson. From the front seat of his rental car, parked on the side of the road, he watched Anderson going about his business, coming and going from his apartment complex. 
He observed the man's movements, his visitors, his habits. And one morning, he watched Anderson purposely walk out of his front door with a trash bag in each hand, placing them in the top of a dumpster. This was Fuller's chance. When he was sure he wasn't being observed, he casually walked across the road to the dumpster, a look around to be sure he wasn't being watched, and acting as nonchalantly as possible, he reached inside, grabbed the trash bags, and walked back to his car. The bags proved to be a goldmine of information. Firstly, mail and bills inside assured him he'd grabbed the right bags. There were plenty of items bearing Anderson's name and address. Then it was Fuller's job to remove and forensically seal items which might hold a significant sample of Anderson's DNA to take to the lab for testing. And he did so. Items including a water bottle, a bottle of spiced rum and a can of vanilla Coke. He placed each one carefully in a labelled bag. These items were then transported back to Cherry Hills Police Department. More specifically, to the evidence technician, Paul McCarthy. It was Paul's job to run DNA testing and to obtain a DNA profile. And exactly a week later, Paul was able to share his findings. His lab report stated that one singular male DNA profile was developed from the neck of the vanilla Coke can. This DNA profile was a match to multiple items of evidence recovered almost 30 years previously at the home and from the body of Sylvia Quayle. In so many investigations, DNA holds the key which unlocks doors. Investigators could now make irrefutable links between victim and assailant. The bodily fluids found on the orange rug and on the white cloth left on Sylvia's face could all be matched definitively to Anderson. Officers surrounded the Cozad apartment block on the 10th of February 2021 and David Dwayne Anderson, at this point 62 years old, was placed under arrest for the murder of Sylvia Quayle 30 years earlier. The news began to spread. Michelle Tovray, now the chief of the Cherry Hills Village Police Department, called a press conference. We can only try to understand the deep pain and sense of loss you've experienced over the years, Tovray publicly told the family. I'm pleased there's a path moving forward to seek justice in Sylvia's death. Sylvia's sister and family then read the quote. Facing the camera, they read, Beauty seen is never lost. And Chief Michelle Tovray agreed it was a very fitting reminder of the beautiful person Sylvia was. On the 26th of May, 2022, an Arapahoe County jury found 62-year-old David Dwayne Anderson guilty on two counts of first-degree murder in the vicious slaying of Sylvia Quayle. Though heartbreakingly, William and Mary Quayle did not live to see their daughter's alleged killer convicted. William Quayle died in 1999, and his wife passed away ten years later. 
But now, Arapahoe County can celebrate that a three-decade-old cold case is finally solved with the help of a commonplace can of vanilla Coke and the incredible advancement of forensic technology. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas, and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review, and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3 99 per month.